Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Last week, we shared with you part one of my discussion with Marcy Buckner at the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. And I had to split that episode into two parts due to length. I'm going to just continue that episode now, starting right where we left off. Please enjoy. So let's talk about the CMS. Uh, they released a proposed 2024 Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters, NBPP. See, I, I wanted to define my acronym there so, so I don't get the emails, but uh, uh, these include some pretty big changes. Can you tell us about that? Yes. And, and to put things in perspective, this came out the same week as that uh, Medicare proposed rule. So when you talk about the complexity of reading all of these things and the volume, this was another one that was several hundred pages. It um, it can be very overwhelming. And this was, I think, maybe a week or two before the holidays in December. So it's always, like it's it, always, it's always on a Friday, always. Friday afternoon, <laughs> Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. or um, right. December 23rd, December 27th. They really, yeah, December 22nd. Remember all these big laws that pass, and yeah, it's always, it's always at the end of the year, right before Christmas or right before the New Year, right. or or a holiday weekend. I just feel like I'm, I'm left with lumps of coal in my stocking. But, um, but the, <laughs> the notice of benefit and payment parameters. Um, this comes out every year, the NBPP, and it determines kind of the rules of the road for um, the open enrollment in the marketplace on the individual market for the next year. And I think for this one, again, there were many pieces involved here, um, but some of the pieces that we are very concerned with are um, narrowing of the standardization of plans and plan designs. And something that, um, depending on where you are in the country and your experience over the past several years with the ACA, um, you probably remember that there were years where there were bare counties, meaning um, that there were counties that did not have any carriers available or any plans available within that county. Um, or in, in, in most cases, um, if, if, they, they did have a carrier. It was one. So um, we had a lot of states that had one carrier for the entire state that was available within the marketplace um, during certain years. And this is all impacted by the, the competition in the market. Um, we've seen an increase in competition in the market, which is good. We want that. We want multiple carriers and multiple choices. And the way that this would, um, the, the restriction and, and kind of increasing the standardization of of these plans, the way that this would impact is that it it would lessen the choices that are available within the market, which NABIT believes would be um, a hindrance to the market. And we, we don't want to go back in time where we see that there's only one plan choice for bronze plans in an area. So we, we don't want to revisit that time where there, there were so few choices. Um, what, what we're suggesting is that if they feel like there are too many choices or that it's too difficult to be able to determine the difference 
between the plans that instead of restricting the um, availability of, of different plans and having more choice, maybe the solution is refining the way that the plans are displayed on marketplace so that these differences are easier to determine instead of taking away choices. So that's um, one of the pieces that we're, we're really working on. Um, we're also looking at, there is a provision that would allow um, assisters and navigators, um, already they're allowed to go door to door knocking and educate people on enrollment in the marketplace. Um, this would allow them, uh, right now they are restricted from knocking on the doors telling people about, you know, do you know about healthcare.gov? Um, and right now they're restricted from then going forward and enrolling that person in a plan. This uh, NBPP would change that and allow them to then enroll them door to door. Um, we're concerned about that because we feel like that it doesn't provide enough consumer protection um, and just kind of whether someone is making an informed decision by someone coming and knocking on your door. As much as we all love Girl Scout cookies, they're delicious. Those are sold door to door. That's a very easy choice to make if you're if you're signing up to um, support your local Girl Scout troop. But um, buying insurance is very different, and enrolling in insurance is very different. And we think it needs to have the gravitas, so to speak, of being held to a different standard and not something that you're signing up for when someone's knocking door to door. Yeah, uh, uh, an adult you know, standing at your front door is a little bit more threatening to some people, um, just simply because of their size, might be six foot tall, might be whatever, uh, compared to a little, a little girl right. <laughs> with a smile on her face saying, will you buy my cookies? That's a little bit uh, different uh, scenario there. Um, I know, I, Absolutely. I, I, you know what, I have to tell you a lot of times when people knock on my door, I won't even open it. I look at my ring camera and I see who it is. And it's like, right. I don't know that person. I'm not opening the door for them. Who knows who, you know, especially in today's world, <laughs> people, guns and people, right. you, you never, know. You never yeah. know. So anyway, you know, I, I understand why there's concern there. Well, let's talk about some good news for employers. The employer report deadline was permanently extended. Yay. Um, what's the new deadline for reporting? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So this shifts that 6055-6056 reporting um, that was due every year. It was due January 31st. And almost every year for employers to release that information, every year it was um, delayed by 30 days. And that's something that we at NABIP have asked for along the way, um, along this ACA journey, um, because that deadline was, it, it was January 31st was just far too soon for employers to be able to collect all of this information and be able to distribute it. That's, that's for sure. Because I know we've been very <laughs> active, you know, my clients are all large groups. So yeah, I get it. That's just, that was the most ludicrous deadline I've ever seen because those 1094s, those 1095s, those are not simple forms to complete, you know, doing all the checking and, oh, and, and half the time the payroll companies are making mistakes. If they were, you know, the ones actually filling out the forms, they've got to be checked and rechecked because if they're wrong, there are a lot of consequences. There's a lot of penalties and, and right. you know, and the good faith efforts are go have pretty much gone away. So, you mean, you have to get it right now. So, yeah, they, I think they actually needed to do that. I don't think this is something that not only did we want, but I think it was very much needed in, in the marketplace. Yes. Yes. And so we said to them, hey, <laughs> how about if instead of announcing every year that you're doing a 30 day delay, how about you just go ahead and put that delay um 
in place permanently. And so that's what they did. And so now it is 30 days past January 31st. And as I was sharing with folks, because they they are taking that phrasing and putting it in place, and because January 31st was in the original ACA, that's why they aren't saying it's March 2nd or March 1st. Um, That's why they're saying it's 30 days past January 31st. And because February sometimes has 28 days, sometimes has 29 days, um, they can't say March 1st, 2nd, 3rd. So they're saying 30 days after um, January 31st, which for this year will be March 2nd, 2023. Right. right. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Cause yeah. I know I've had a lot of questions on that. You know, you can't just say it's March 2nd. You can't do that. Yeah. Remember February, remember that strange month of February. So yes, for sure. So the transparency and coverage guidance uh, was released that clarifies public reporting in some areas. Can you fill us in on that? Yes, this is, um, so there, there are a lot of different pieces that were passed um, for transparency in the CAA, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And one of them was that requirement for plan sponsors to provide a machine-readable format on a website accessible from, to their employees, information about in-network and out-of-network reimbursement rates and, and other information. And when I say machine-readable format, this is um, this is not something that humans are able to look right, at and right. read. Machines, um, machines, it, machines are supposed to read yes, them. <laughs> it is very, very different. Um, if you look at it, it looks like hieroglyphics. It just is not anything that is discernible. Um, and so for some plan sponsors, this was not something that was within their ability to be able to do themselves, um, whether it was based on their size or, um, you know, their HR department or um, different capabilities, as well as who holds that information, whether it actually belongs to the carrier or a TPA instead of the plan sponsor. And so they clarified this, that plan sponsors are able to contract with the carriers to provide this machine readable format um, and display it. Um, And, but there was a, a caveat. So for fully funded plans, if you contract with the carrier to provide the, um, the disclosures here, if with that relationship, if for some reason there's any um, issue with compliance, if it's a fully insured plan, the, the carrier or TBA is responsible for um, any, any penalties or issues with, with non-compliance. However, if you are a self-funded plan and you contract with the carrier and there's an issue with compliance, then it will be the plan sponsor that is responsible for any penalties or compliance issues if there's a failure to meet the requirements. So that was the clarification, but, but, but specifically allowing plans to work with carriers for the carriers to display it was a huge relief to a lot of employers. Yeah, it really was. And that was a difficult thing. I've done a lot of webinars and seminars for our own clients on, on the TIC and, and the CAA um, requirements for all of these things. And, and one of the important things that I just want to mention uh, is they do have to have, they are required to have a written agreement with, even if it's fully insured with a carrier. And sometimes people don't realize that. So you need to check with your carriers to make sure, you know, just to check how they're doing it. We, we created our own contracts covering all of these items, uh, the machine readable files, the RX reporting, which we'll talk about in a bit here uh, and so forth. We put it into one contract. And then even if they were fully insured, we still had our clients sign it, send it to the carriers, knowing that they probably 
probably wouldn't accept that, but it started the communication so that they could explain to us how they uh, how they're doing that written agreement component of that. Because, for example, they may have sent out and the client may not even realize what it was, uh, the employer plan sponsor, uh, an amendment to their policy and so forth. Um, but they have to have written a written agreement somewhere. And uh, yeah. it's important that everybody track how that is. So we thought if we sent out uh, here, we've got knowing that they're probably not going to sign our agreement. We sent it out to each of the uh, carriers and uh, for each of our clients and said, this is our signed agreement that you're going to be taking care of these. If you're handling it in a different way, let us know how you're doing that. Provide us with written correspondence so that we can document that. And that got the conversation going. So that's what we did on our self-funded clients. It was pretty obvious we had to have an agreement with everybody, with their with their drug manu- with their pharmacy benefit managers, with their third party administrators and so forth. But that's the piece that, that's missing, I think, in a lot of these cases. And I think that's something that you have to really make sure that it's being handled somehow, some way in writing. Would Absolutely. you agree? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Well, let's, I mentioned this briefly a second ago, but let's talk more about it. Uh, something that was very welcome was the CAA good faith effort provisions for prescription drug reporting. This is something that, as you know, I've personally been working on for a number of months, and I was very happy to hear about this. It was a very nice Christmas present when I believe it was on December 23rd. Uh, they yeah. finally released something uh, on this. So can you fill us, uh, can you fill in our listeners on this? Yes, I was I was just about to shut down a little early that Friday, December 23rd, when at about 4.30, 4.45, I got um, an email from the Department of Labor. I, I got, I got the same email. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so I fired my computer back up to, to let our folks know um, that that this came a, a little early than, than, than Santa on Christmas Eve, but um, that prescription drug reporting requirement that, again, passed as part of the transparency pieces in the CAA um, required plan sponsors to disclose and report a number of different items on prescription drugs from their plans, um, things like the, the 50 most uh, prescribed drugs on their um, on their plan, um, in a lot of cases down to the number of pills that were distributed, just a lot of information that, um, similar to the machine-readable files, Plan sponsors are, are, are trying to work with other entities like their carriers, TPA, or pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, to get this information and be in compliance. And so it was very complicated. And plan sponsors were very nervous about not being able to provide accurate information and, and having a compliance issue. So the good faith effort that was released on December 23rd allows and says that if plan sponsors, if they just try their hardest to be in compliance with what they're reporting, that it will be counted as meeting the qualifications to disclose this information. Um, And a lot of times when we see these types of good faith effort provisions uh, released, it's usually because the the agencies, not only do they realize that there's a challenge here, right, um, but they also are trying to figure out how, what the best way is for them to receive this information. And, 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 and so, they were fully backed up, too, because I have to tell you, um, if you put in a ticket, uh, because we're actually, my, my for example, my company is actually uh, using HIOS. The HIOS system is where they, they file it. And because of our, our self-funded clients, we wanted to save them the money because they're third-party administrators and so forth. We're charging a lot of money and they're PBMs and so forth uh, to do this filing. Some of it we have to let the PBMs do, but we wanted to be able to file 
file some of the plan data files, the, the P files for them, uh, and, uh, and one of the DEET files, the D2, which we were able to get from the TPA, basically to save the clients money from having to pay those vendors to do that because they were charging quite a bit. So we actually have access into HIOS and we actually signed up for that months in advance. And I have to tell you, it took weeks and weeks and weeks to get our ticket because we had, I had an issue, uh, because of the way they defined, um, <laughs> the way they defined things on their system when you tried to sign up because you have to go through a process. You have to, uh, not only just have someone be a submitter, but you have to have at least two people in the organization um, that are responsible for this, right? Uh, those role approvers. You had to have a primary role approver and a secondary backup role approver. And until you did that, no one could actually submit. And people didn't understand this. It was very complicated. So I had a question because my role approver status um, was not going forward because my corporation wasn't being accepted yet. And the reason it wasn't, and this took five weeks, just so you know, just to kind of inform people how difficult this is and how time consuming, it took five weeks for my ticket to get opened and to get handled. Uh, and now they handled it very, very quickly and efficiently once they got to it. But what it was, was that I read the instructions and I checked off the box that I thought would apply, which was the other. What they wanted was me to, to use this non-licensed category, which in my mind, I'm a licensed agent. So that would never apply to me. Uh, but they were talking right. about the way they defined it. They were in their minds, they were saying insurance companies. Um, so uh, just getting uh, just getting my corporation put into the system took five weeks. Uh, people didn't understand that. It was very complicated. So just, again, just kind of reiterating that this is not a simple process, and you have to have the experts working on this. And, and again, it has to do with plan files, uh, plan data, and, uh, and, then, and then the actual data files with all of that complicated stuff that they're asking for. So this is not a one-and-done you know one and done type of thing. And by the way, they just had – they've had many webinars. I don't know. I've been on all of them. I think they've had nine or something so far. I was just on one the other day. Day, uh, and they actually said that not only because they did extend it from December 27th, the original deadline, to January 31st, but they did say on their webinar the other day uh, that even if you know if you are having these kind of problems like I had, just getting going. Uh, luckily, we started early, but um, as long as there's um, as long as there's documentation that you've been trying to do it, uh, for example, you have tickets and so forth, and they may not get to you in time of the even the extended January 31st deadline. They did say that they're not going to penalize you as long as you're making the, the effort to have that good faith. So just for anybody that's listening, that's going through this, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Just The deadline is now January 31st, but that does not mean, um, you know, if you can't get it fi finished that they're, oh my gosh, they're going to start giving me penalties on the, on the next day. But that, that relief of penalties will only happen if you've been communicating with HIOS, communicating with their, the CMS help desk and so forth. And so make sure if you haven't done that yet, you get your tickets in that, you know, you can't get this fixed because that's how they will know that you will have a relief on penalties. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware of that because we're personally doing this and this is not an easy task at all. It's very time consuming. So sorry, I didn't mean to ramble on there, but I think it's important for people to understand. Don't just think it's going to be an automatic um, relief of penalties. You have to actually go through the process and put in a ticket or be communicating with their help desk in order to get that, you know, if it does happen to go beyond January 31st, which is the now new deadline. So FYI. Dorothy, all of that is so important to, to keep in mind, especially when, when we're talking about what good faith means and, and showing that you are trying your hardest. And part of trying your hardest is doing exactly what you're saying, putting that ticket in. 
showing that you tried to meet the deadline um, and doing all of those things, but also sharing that experience of how long it took to have something resolved is very important because even when you have the delay in that deadline, you can't take that for granted. You have to, you need to start the process because um, like you mentioned, five weeks, I mean, you don't know how long it's going going to take. So yeah. it's definitely not something to start on, on January 30th when it's right. due. January and I couldn't, I couldn't get through the first, uh, the first, the very first step, which was I had to be an organization and they wouldn't approve my organization because of the way I checked off the box, which was I used other and it shouldn't have been. I was supposed to be this non and non licensed thing. I'm like, but I am licensed. So I, their definitions are different than ours. So uh, you have to really understand what they're what you need to do. And and it's it, like I said, it's complicated. So like I said, we started on this in October. Thank heavens. Uh, but uh, they've been having a lot of webinars um, and they've been trying to explain it to us. And and the last three or four weeks they've been doing a tremendous job, I have to say, uh, of trying to explain and help people. And I, and I really have to say that CMS has really stepped up. And, and uh, But they, they did say that they are one month behind on their tickets. So, um, yeah, it's going to take a while. <laughs> but let's, let's move on because I know I could talk about this for, forever because it is a, uh, an ongoing problem. What are some of the top provisions for employers that NABIP has been working on? Let's start with, you mentioned this before, preserving the employer tax exclusion. Why is this so important? Yes, and I was actually just with a, a coalition talking about this um, earlier this week. It's something that is on the minds of a lot of folks here in, in D.C. And the employer tax exclusion is it's that provision that allows employees to deduct from their income the funds that employers provide to them in the form of their health insurance benefits. And um, from time to time, uh, folks on both sides of the aisle look at this benefit and see it as a great thing that should be capped or taxed um, as a way to increase funds coming into the federal government. But we believe that if these benefits are taxed, it could be the largest tax that we've seen on middle-class Americans in, in quite some time. Um, it's a huge benefit to employees because it reduces the amount of taxable income they have. And if that is suddenly taxed, um, we, we could see a lot of employers leaving the employer-sponsored market because it also impacts them um, for, for their cost analysis when they're offering these benefits. And uh, we are just really worried about how this would impact the employer-sponsored market as a whole. So we're very careful um, and keep an eye out for anything that would even have a hint of capping the employer exclusion. Um, in that case, it would mean that not all of those benefits would be taxed, but part of them would be taxed. So there would be a cap on how much could be taxed. That's what they mean when they say capping the employer exclusion. But as you all know, things cost money here in DC. And so when they're looking at expanding benefits in one area or doing something for, for Medicare or other markets, um, we are very close to watch where they're trying to take the money from and making sure that it's not um, in the form of taxing employer benefits. Oh, thank you for that. And I know we talked about this before, uh, but I want to bring it back up again because, again, some of the things that, that NABIP is working on. Let's talk a little bit more about employer reporting. What have your activities been like on that front? Sure. And, and even with, um, you know, that extension that we talked about earlier, um, employer reporting still isn't super easy um, or, or streamlined as, as much as we've had a lot of organizations and businesses and entities that have come forth to provide a lot of services to be able to help with those look back periods and measurement periods and, and all of those things um, as you're putting together your compliance on this. Um, but 
NABIP is working on what we call the Common Sense Reporting Act, and it would change the way that um, the employer reporting is structured. And, it, and it's, it would be voluntary. So if you really like the system that's in place now, you could still do it. But we think this is this would make things a lot easier. And it would allow for employers to report at the beginning of the year what they're offering instead of at the end of the year. And it would also restrict the amount of information that they're reporting. So right now, employers are having to collect social security numbers for dependents that they aren't even covering and other information that we just think is not needed and something that employers don't need to have collected and lying around waiting for a security breach like we kind of talked about earlier. Yeah. So it would it would help on the volume of information employers are collecting as well. But another way that this would help is that um, especially with that change in the family glitch, if employers are reporting at the beginning of the year what they're offering, then when someone goes to the individual market thinking that they could get a subsidy. When they go to the individual market, they're asked, do you have an affordable offer of coverage from an employer? And that's a legal question. A lot of people think, you know, like, is it affordable? No, like health insurance is expensive. And even if it's affordable by the legal definition that it's not more than that 9.5% of, of household income, the person filling that out may still see that as, as unaffordable and, and check that box. Um, and so and then it could lead them to enrolling in a plan with a subsidy that they don't qualify for, and then they have to pay it back. With the Common Sense Reporting Act, if employers are reporting who they're offering coverage to at the beginning of the year, then when um, open enrollment rolls around, if someone goes to the exchange and attempts to enroll, HHS and IRS will already have that information from the Department of Labor. And so it, when that question pops up, do you have an affordable offer of coverage? If they say no, the system will then know, wait, hold on, you do have an affordable offer of coverage because we already received that from the employer that's offering that. When, and whether it's to the the spouse or dependents of that employee where the offer of coverage is originating. So we think that this will also help on, on a number of other fronts, even just outside of the employer market. Yeah, for sure. Well, can you update us on the single payer and Medicare for all situation in Washington? What's going on with that now? Yes. So with some of the, the changes in, in D.C. with the makeup of the different committees on the Senate and House side, on the Senate side, we have Bernie Sanders, who is now the chair of the Senate Health Committee, Health Education labor and, and pensions. And so because of that, we do know that we are going to see some hearings on single payer and Medicare for all and possible public options. He will want to, to host hearings on all of those things. Um, but what we also know because of those numbers that we looked at at the or that we were talking about at the beginning, um, we know that Bernie Sanders doesn't have 59 other senators that will vote with him on uh, passing something on the Senate side for Medicare. And he definitely doesn't have 218 um, members of the House that will vote for anything. So we're, we're going to see this be a discussion in D.C. We are not going to see anything pass. But NABIP and other organizations are going to be very vocal on this because it will be something when issues get hearings like this, it does get a lot of press. And we want to make sure that our message about the dangers of these types of programs are discussed and that we're getting that message out while the issue is getting attention in these hearings. Well, thank you for that. Lastly, a couple of Medicare updates. Can you tell us about COBRA and observation status changes within Medicare? Yes, we are proposing 
changes to um, the way COBRA is treated for folks that are um, of Medicare eligible age. So right now, if you age into Medicare and for some reason you go on COBRA um, and a lot of people do this. It might be that they're in, um, they've already met their deductible. They, they don't want to go onto Medicare um, they, or they want to continue with the treatment plan within the provider network that they have for their COBRA plan and are putting off going onto Medicare. There are a number of reasons that this happens. But right now, if you do not go onto Medicare, um, when you, if you're on COBRA and you age into Medicare, when you do finally go onto COBRA, you are penalized and that penalty stays with you for life. And so we are proposing a bill that would allow a one-time special enrollment period for folks to go from COBRA onto Medicare without getting that penalty. So to make that a lot easier. That, 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 to, me, then, that to me, it seems like such a no-brainer that they, I can't believe, that absolutely. This is, I can't believe this has gone on for as long as it has. I mean, that's just something that they should have fixed a long time ago. That's personal opinion. Sorry. <laughs> I, we agree with it. <laughs> um, and then on observation status, this is something that we have brought up before the pandemic. There is right now a special flexibility that basically does what we're asking on observation status. So now we're asking for this flexibility to be made permanent because we haven't seen a change in cost to the federal government, which is what they're using as an excuse to not fix it. But with observation status, the issue is if you are a Medicare beneficiary and you go to the hospital, if it's you know a high level issue, um, you'll be coded either as observation status or inpatient status. You oftentimes will receive the exact same care for the exact same issue, but you're billed very differently. If you're observation status, you will be billed higher than if you are inpatient status. And on top of that, if you are at the level of care that you then need to go to a skilled nursing facility or a SNF, then if you were previously coded as observation status and you go to a SNF, you're billed even more for that um, than if you were previously coded as inpatient status for two midnights before going to the SNF. So this almost becomes a surprise billing of, of Medicare where folks don't realize how they're being coded. And hospitals also have up to six months to go back and redetermine the coding for someone of observation status versus inpatient status. It's also something that someone could get billed for months after the original incident took place. Um, so because they, the treatment that you're receiving is, is, is exactly the same, we're asking for observation status to be treated as inpatient status. So we're not seeing the differential in, in the billing. And, and the reason why hospitals are doing this is because they want to show that they don't have a repeat of inpatient status for the same beneficiary. If they have repeat admittance, then uh, and a high level of readmittance for beneficiaries, they do not receive as much funding from the federal government. So they want to show a low uh, rate of having folks coming in as inpatient status. And that's why sometimes they'll go back and change uh, beneficiary status to observation status so they can... Um, manipulate their data and um, and look as though they're not having those high readmittance rates. Right, right. Well, thank you for all of this information. Um, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have uh, for today. Thank you for being so kind and for taking the time to update us today. If someone would like to reach out to you or anyone at NABIP, how will they do that? Yes, you can find us at nabip.org, and that's N-A-B-I-P.org, um, or they can reach me at M Buckner, so M-B-U-C-K-N-E-R at nabip.org. 
Thank you. And thanks so much for being my guest today and updating us on all of the federal legislative information. Thank you so much. Happy to come back when we get some more victories on the board um, and share some good news. Well, that's good because you know I'm going to be contacting you. You know I'm going to be asking you to do this again, (laughs) like I always do pretty much every year. So thank you very much. Absolutely. (laughs) To everyone out there listening, please stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay tuned for the next episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. To our loyal, long-term listeners, I want to thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. We really appreciate you. And to the new listeners, and I know there are many based on our tremendous growth over the past two years, thank you so much for trying us out and continuing to listen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.